This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 26, 2021. I'm Megan Cantwell. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up, science writer Yao Hua Lao joins me to discuss using social insects as models for aging. How does a queen bee end up living so much longer than a worker bee? Then, senior podcast producer Sarah Crespi brings us a segment from the AAAS meeting last month. She talks with researcher Nashir Contractor about how to make sure teams taking a three-year trip to Mars get along. Most research on aging has been conducted on model organisms, including mice, worms, and flies. I'm here with Yao Hua Lao, who wrote a story this week about why social insects, such as ants and bees, have shed a new light on how animals age. Thank you so much for joining me. Ah, thanks, Megan. Love to be here. I wanted to start with why these social insects have kind of been traditionally overlooked in long-term studies on aging. The groups of scientists who work on aging science, they don't come from social insects background. And on the other hand, the many, many scientists who study ants, termites, and bees, they do not study aging. You study behavior, you study their population biology, you study their social systems. I mean, even if you study the social systems, there's like you know, a zillion questions to be answered. Aging research in social insects didn't really catch on until sometime in the mid 90s or like the late 90s. When scientists do experiments, they want all other variables to be constant, right? Except for that one variable that they are really testing. And it's very difficult to achieve that in a social insect system. First, you don't have that much control over a colony. It's not just one individual. And that one individual can't really survive alone, right? They have to rely on other individuals. Are model organisms usually easier to work with? I have worked in Drosophila labs before and it's so easy, right? You just have this like plastic bottle, you put in the yeast and then you just 
throw in the, um, the flies and in just a few days or a week, right, then you get like hundreds of flies. But that's definitely not the case for just thick ants, for example. You need to maintain a colony. And then if you're interested in the queens itself, then every colony only has like one or just a handful of queens, depending on the species. If you need 50 queens, for example, you need to maintain 50 colonies. And that's a lot of work. With model organisms, I mean, some of them only live for about like 18 days or a month or so. When researchers are studying these animals that have such a short lifespan, I mean, are they missing a big picture in aging when they choose to do this? The argument is that if you're looking for mechanisms that allow an animal to live long, then you shouldn't be looking in short-lived species, right? Okay, that makes sense. But it's also possible. I mean, scientists have been able to extend the lifespan of the short-lived Drosophila fly. So in that same vein, you can also look for what is it that makes them short-lived and how can you extend that longevity? So you're kind of looking for different things. You're looking to tweak something to make it live longer or find out why is this thing living longer? Yeah, exactly. So I think there are arguments uh, both for and against, but the main loss that we are experiencing, if we only look at flies, nematodes, and mice, is that we are not appreciating or we are discounting the diversity of aging patterns in nature. If you only focus on a handful of species and you're saying that I'm going to extrapolate from these five species how aging in nature works, you can't extrapolate like that because aging patterns is so diverse. You know, the queens and kings of termites and then the queens of bees and ants, they live, they could live up to decades, like three decades, whereas most of the, almost all of the other adult insects like dragonflies, butterflies, beetles, grasshoppers, you name it, they only live for months, right? So there's like a huge difference there. And if you see that on the graph, it's like, oh, there's definitely something in there that makes these queens live so long. Why is it that social insects live longer and age less rapidly than these more traditional model organisms? So the overarching theory is what scientists call the extrinsic mortality risk hypothesis. You know, we think of evolution and natural selection, right? Natural selection selects for the traits that allow the organism to survive best and to reproduce best. It must survive until we can reproduce. So then the selection would be strongest in this early phase of its life. No, once you have reproduced, the selection drops off. And so after any problem that comes into your DNA repair, any drop of function, decline in cognition, it's more or less okay because you have already passed on like the genes that could survive and reproduce. That's, you know, so why you see flies age so rapidly and all of that after they've reproduced. But in social insects, you don't see that because the queens or the kings have been selected to reproduce the longer they live. So the longer they're able to live, then the higher the fecundity, the more reproduction that can be done. And the whole colony benefits from that. There is this whole selection for extended lifespan, which comes also with more and more reproduction and fecundity for the whole colony itself. And then of course, then there's also the, the argument that queens and kings are better protected inside the nest so then they do not suffer as much of a risk of, you know, death and diseases and stuff. So then they've also been selected to live longer. Churning that many eggs, it seems like it would be really taxing on the body. Like, how is it that they're able to still live that long, giving birth to so many different insects? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
for me, I used to think of aging as a logical consequence of wear and tear. And for almost all animals, you see reproduction is such a taxing effort. It comes with a quick burnt out. So you expect queens to really burn out very soon too, but they don't. But then it also reminds us that as youth, right, when we were younger, that our body can just tolerate and repair all this different damage to you know wounds, diseases, pathogens, DNA damage. So why is it that those repair mechanisms deteriorate at a certain age? If the queen can live so long, it suggests that her ability to repair remains strong and she remains vigorous and she's still youthful all throughout. You highlighted an example where an insect will transition to foraging, going out in the environment for food, and that's taxing and they're aging faster. But then if they switch to a different role in the colony, that can actually kind of change their life expectancy again. That type of plasticity was really interesting to me. Yeah. Some of the research done on the model organisms, you know, when it comes to aging, it's really to look at how you can slow or even stop aging. And it seems to a certain level, some social insects have been shown to do that. Like in the honeybees, the ones that age the fastest and die the fastest would be the forager worker. They age really quickly. They cannot learn as well. You know, their cognitive performance is, is weaker compared to the nurse bees, the ones that are younger and stay inside the hive to take care of the queen and the larva. When scientists sort of like force the forager bees to revert into their nurse bees' roles, then they, they find like molecularly, these reverted nurse bees are actually better able to repair damages to their body. And then they also show better cognition performance. Just by changing jobs or by changing social roles, something happened in their body and then they become youthful again. So they haven't really got down to, you know, how it actually works. There's still gaps there, but I, I found it very interesting. Seeing how aging is impacted by social life, I mean, that could also apply to humans as well. But how can this research extend past specifically animals that are social? How can it be used more broadly to understand aging? This is one of the questions that I really struggle with in my story too. Of course, I asked this of all the social scientists that I interviewed, right? But actually, many, I think almost all of the social scientists who study aging, that whom I spoke to, they told me like, oh, we are not so concerned about how it works for humans <laughs> because they're all social scientists at heart. Aging is only but a part of their research. You know, it's, not, it's very often not even the main part of their research. Definitely what we learn or what we have learned in social insects or any organisms, it would show you know, the diversity of how aging happens or does not happen. And then we can then look for similar processes or pathways inside humans and other mammals. Aging science in general, overall, is definitely still in its infancy. There's just so much that we do not know. So if able to know, you know, shed light on any parts of it, I think that's always helpful. What kind of improvements are researchers hoping to develop in the future to better study social insects? Many of the techniques can be transferred, right, from Drosophila to ants and bees and termites. It's more like the, the tools just haven't been customized for social insects. That is more of the experimental, very nitty-gritty examination, right, to study the mechanisms, like the how of this aging works 
And that's very important because you need to identify the genes or the pathways that control and regulate all this aging speed that also need to attract other scientists who work on aging biology to pay attention to the potentials and, and the, the promises that there can be in social insects when it comes to aging. Some of them have suggested that social insects scientists who are interested in aging should really focus on just like a handful of species, right? So if focus is just like how everyone focuses on Drosophila, then it's a combined effort, right? And then suddenly you have like a zillion tools coming out and everyone can use those tools. Um, so if they just focus on a, a handful of ants or termites, then you should get that same uh, acceleration in terms of techniques too. But then of course, uh, others sort of do not agree because there's just so much diversity within social insects. If you just focus on a handful, you might run into that problem of trying to extrapolate aging in social insects from just three ant species or two termite species. And that's a problem in, in itself too. Does it seem like there is a lot more interest in the research in recent years? I think we can definitely expect more studies to come out on aging in social insects. I mean, the ball has already started rolling, right? And I expect it to snowball. Whether there is a real jump in interest, I can't tell. Hopefully, this theme issue that was just published uh, early March could really bring attention of the public and also of scientists. There are many, 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 many groups out there who study social insects, right? Hopefully, they can look into the aging aspects of the species they're studying. They can definitely contribute their information on the life history of the species that they study, how this colony ages, how the queen ages, lifespan of the workers. Those are all very, very useful information for the aging ecology of uh, social insects. So hopefully we'll see a lot more collaboration between groups that may not traditionally collaborate with each other since their focuses are different. What I hope to see next is that in huge conferences of aging biology that we see symposiums just focus on social insects. That would be great. I think that's sort of like been missing so far. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Megan. Yao Hua Lao is a science journalist based in Malaysia. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. Next up, Sarah Crespi talks with researcher Nashir Contractor about how to predict conflict on board long space missions and repair teams on the fly. This week, we're bringing you some highlights from the 2021 AAAS Annual Meeting. I've got Nashir Contractor here. He's a professor of behavioral sciences at Northwestern University. And we're going to talk about making sure astronauts can work together on extended trips in space like the year-long trip to Mars. Hi, Nashir. Hello. This seems like a good day to have this conversation. Sometime this afternoon, the Perseverance rover will hopefully land on Mars. Now we're going to talk about someday sending people there, people with personalities, not helicopters or car-shaped robots. What are some of the big differences between sending a robot to Mars and a person to Mars? As we prepare for these long distance, not just long duration, but long distance space exploration, NASA realizes that in addition to the physiological effects of space travel, such as low gravity, such as radiation, we now also have to think about the psychosocial effects that happen to humans 
when you send them on these long duration space missions. We are talking in large part about a person's individual well-being, but also a team's well-being. There was a Russian cosmonaut who once said that putting two astronauts into a confined environment sets the perfect scene for a crime. And so there's a real sense in which people who are going to be put into this, most likely six international crew members from around the world, you're putting them into a small confined capsule and you're sending them on a mission that would take about nine months to get from here to Mars. They have to spend approximately nine months there before the trajectory will be able to sling them back to Earth in the relatively short period of time. It becomes a three-year mission and you have to make sure that you recognize that these six individuals have no voluntary way of leaving that situation. A lot of what we are trying to do is to understand what are the effects of isolation, confinement, extreme environments on the dynamics within a team. Why wouldn't we want to know this before? Even just going up to ISS, you are stuck in a can and there's the same people all day long and you don't really have much contact with home. This is just so much different. Yes, I think it is different. By the way, you're right that we should be doing this, but NASA has a very systematic scheme for understanding the risk level associated with different issues. And they understood that teamwork and psychosocial issues is a risk issue, but they evaluated it as a low risk issue for low Earth orbit or even travel to the moon. There is a qualitative difference when you are not able to even see the Earth. You don't have that sense of perspective. You don't have the Earth rise. It is also the case that today on the International Space Station, for example, it's relatively easy for crew members on the station to be able to call home, to call their family, to be able to participate on social media. To live stream on YouTube. Exactly. And now none of that is going to be possible. The word live is going to be removed from the vocabulary of any communication. Ground control and the crew up in space, they have different tasks. They have different priorities and they can work together and you can swap out different people on ground control to help with different problems. That's not available to you anymore to a large extent when you're 20 minutes delayed. That is absolutely true. The joke has always been, and there's some truth to it, the astronauts and the crew members are the eyes and the ears and the hands of the mission. But that mission control is the brains of the mission, that things get decided at mission control and then get executed in space. The moment we start thinking about a trip to Mars, that changes because of the time delay associated with it. 42 minutes for just a simple round trip conversation, one exchange. It becomes really important that the crew also begins to be the brain of the mission. Why can't we just put the people who would be ground control into the spacecraft? Well, that's interesting that you mention it because it has been a long history of the person who is the capsule communicator. So the person from mission control, from ground control, who communicates with the astronaut has typically been an astronaut. And the reason they have done that is exactly for this reason, that they want somebody who's had experience being on a mission, now being the communicator from mission control to the mission. But because of the fact that we only have six people you need to make sure that they are going to be able to make all of the decisions. There are six people who are going to have a lot of skills amongst them. They're going to be scientists. They're going to have to take care of each other's health. They've got to take care of experiments that they're working together. They're supposed to help with propulsion. The unintended consequence of this is that it's possible that the crew members get so closely connected amongst themselves 
that they might actually set up a barrier against mission control. And that is something that space scientists are really concerned about, that you might find that they will gang up against mission control. If they have a problem, blame it on mission control. Can you talk a little bit about the Skylab example that you mentioned? I guess it's a case study in this kind of dynamic. It was the third human visitor Skylab. There came a point where because of the heavy loads that are there in space travel, one of the things space psychology has taught us is that different crew members have different strategies of how to deal with stress. Some of them will take it out on themselves, and these are people who get unduly depressed. Others might take it out on a fellow crew member, and that dynamic is ugly. The most common strategy seems to be to gang up together and take it out on mission control. And that's what happened on Skylab. And the crew basically was so exhausted, they were so behind time, they were not able to keep up with the demands from mission control, that at one point the commander of the mission said, you know, we're gonna switch off communication with mission control because we need downtime. And the argument was, if you're on Earth, we get weekends off. And uh, they actually shut off communication for a period of time. And this created a lot of anxiety for mission control, but it's only a small vignette of things that might happen with much larger consequences were it to happen when we went to Mars. Is six the set number for the crew? Where did that number come from? So it's not a done deal. In fact, we have a project that we're doing right now in Antarctica. We are looking at scientists based there to understand how dynamics vary when you move from an even number of members in a team, say two or four, and how that changes when you move to an odd number like three or five because of the possibility of creating coalitions in odd numbered groups. And also what happens as you increase the size of the group, because we know from other work that sometimes as a group size increases, each person in the group is likely to slack off. On the other hand, it's also true that as you increase the crew number of crew members, even at the space station, as the number of people on station increases from three to four, from three to five, you see a doubling of productivity because the maintenance work that has to be done to keep everything in place, it doesn't increase linearly with the number of people on it. So as you get an additional person on there, you really increase the possibility of how much more science you can conduct. That's super interesting. Let's turn to some of the research that you discussed during your talk. What I liked about this was you were looking at how crews fit together, but also how to fix problems when they arise. And you used basically mock missions to look into it. Can you describe first your setup for how you were investigating this? Sure. So one of the things that uh, people always wonder about researching space travel is where are you going to get your data from? Because we haven't sent anyone yet to any of these places. Well, it would be nice if we could have a human petri dish where we put people into an isolated, confined environment under stress conditions with communication delays, with sleep deprivation and keep them there 24-7. That doesn't sound nice. Yes. I think most <laughs> institutional review boards would think that's absolutely out of order. As it turns out, that's exactly what we are doing because <laughs> most of the space agencies, not NASA alone, but NASA included, have facilities that they call euphemistically Human Exploration Research Analogs, or HERA for short. And HERA is a facility at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. This is where they put people in there for 30 days, 45 days, and we get to physiologically and psychologically poke and prod them, make them do boring tasks. We see how they react, and then we ask them questions like, who did you get along with? Who do you think is a hindrance? 
that's where we get the data from. Now, do you have profiles of the people that are put in there that can help you later select people for missions to Mars? They go through a selection process, not unlike what happens with astronaut selection. Many of them are aspiring astronauts themselves. What NASA does is they make a decision on who the crew members are going to be for a trip. Once they do that, we have them answer a battery of questions about their personality, about their own networks in their general life, who they like to talk to. We get a sense of do they like to talk to people just like themselves, for example. They are also put into training before they go into the mission for about a week. During the week, we already have a chance to see how they have relational dynamics with one another even before they get into the mission. And then we continue to collect data from them while they're in the analog. Is one of the goals then to be able to make predictions about how people are going to get along on a sustained journey? The idea here is try to get as many clues as we can by collecting data before they get into the mission to see how well we can predict what is going to happen when during the course of the long duration mission while they are in isolation. You're not going to pick the perfect personality profile. You have to pay attention to who's good at what and how people get along. This is one of the big realizations that we've been able to convey to NASA that in the old days, if you go back to the time of when Tom Wolfe wrote about the right stuff for the Mercury astronauts there, you were looking for one singular quality. You want somebody who was a really good test fighter pilot and who was really gutsy and a daredevil. But as you began to get into two-person Gemini crews, three-person Apollo crews, and then the space shuttle that followed, and now the space station, all of a sudden, what you need to do is focus on how people get along with one another. Peggy Whitson, when she was chairing the astronaut selection committee, added a new criteria for the selection of astronauts. And that criteria very simply said, plays well with people. All of a sudden, it was not just the personality, but how well you get along with people. So these qualities became really important. And in interviews we've done with International Space Station astronauts when they return back to Earth, they tell us how important the pleas and the thank yous and backing other people up and monitoring how other people are doing on a certain day so that you can help them when they need it and get out of the way when they don't. In these mock excursions, when people started to not get along, what could you do? What kind of interventions are there? Well, so first of all, if I may brag for a minute, it took us a <laughs> while to even think about whether we could predict whether people were not going to get along, et cetera. Right. That was quite a challenge. And that kind of research really has not been done. And we were successful. And then as we were beginning to uncork the bottle of champagne that we were making these predictions, NASA came back to us and says, great, but that's only part one. It's nice for us to know who's not going to get along with whom on day 23, but how are we going to fix it? So now to answer the question about that, that's where we were looking for strategies. If you think about it intuitively, if two people are not going to get along, you could do three things. You could give them a cooling off period where they don't work together. You could have them work together on something that they are really good at because we know from the literature that success breeds bonding. The third is to put them in a task with someone that they both really like a lot because that person can play broker and peacemaker. We got NASA to allow us to tweak the schedule of who was going to work with whom during the course of the mission. And so we call this repairing people, taking pairs of people and repairing them with others. Then what we did was we said, once we have repaired people, if the goal is to see whether we can fix their relationships, voila, we are repairing people in order to repair their relationship. Love the pun. 
I should have asked you, though, you know, if you're able to predict some of these disagreements, some of these problems, are they inevitable? Is there just no way that six people are going to get into a spacecraft and get along the entire three years? I think that that's a very safe prediction. and It doesn't need three years for that to happen. I'd mentioned two points about it. One is that we can't expect to eliminate conflict. We have to learn to manage conflict. And that is a well-established piece of research across all teams, even here on Earth. The second is that not all conflict is negative. Sometimes conflict can be good. For example, one of the things we find in some of our data is that people who are high conscientiousness in terms of their personality are people who are sometimes seen as a hindrance. And when they are seen as a hindrance, you might say, oh, this is not a good thing. In fact, it might be a very good thing because you want somebody to be the knack, making sure that you've dotted your I's and crossed your T's. And so in many ways, we have to keep this perfect cocktail of balance where not all conflict, not all hindrance is necessarily negative, but we need to look for that sweet spot. How do you see studying intense working relationships like the ones we're talking about today? How could that help other things on the ground, on Earth? Is this going to be useful for other kinds of jobs? NASA has always been very proud that a lot of what they do for the first time in space has spillover effects back on the planet Earth. We believe that teams research in space will be amongst the first big spillover social science-based or computational social science-based applications that will affect work on Earth. Because there's no reason why, especially now that we are instrumenting the workplace with all these technologies that we're using, we are in essence generating the same kind of digital trace data that we are studying within these human analogs. And so with that data comes the opportunity, along with huge privacy debates, about being able to use this to be able to make predictions and use it to staff teams and to see where individuals may be headed and to assist them. Okay, thank you so much, Noshir. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed visiting with you. Noshir Contractor is the Jane S. and William J. White Professor of Behavioral Sciences at Northwestern University. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. On the site, you will find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell with production help from Podigy and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby, and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.